Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. And the reason why is, I mean, it's often a matter of perspective. We're so zoomed in on the potential threat of rejection, we're not thinking about that bigger picture. And so once you know how to zoom out, you can get shifts pretty quickly. Welcome to episode one of What the Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they fundraise. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Ethan Cross, who is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. He's an award-winning professor at the University of Michigan, my alma mater. And the truly amazing thing about him is how he utilizes and implements his research on how the conversations people have with themselves impact their health, performance, decisions, and relationships. And today we're talking about fundraising. He recently wrote his first book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. And I literally devoured it in 24 hours. And as soon as I finished it, I messaged him on Instagram and I said, this book can change fundraising forever. It's what inspired me to start the podcast, which is why he is with me for episode one. I am so thrilled and honored that he said yes. Because what I believe to be a fundamental truth is that the solutions we desperately seek as nonprofit leaders and fundraisers exist, but they exist outside of the sector and they exist in uncommon places. When I read Chatter, I had this deep feeling that if every fundraiser could control the chatter, control the negative narrative in their head that leads to paralysis, that things would change, that the way we ask for money would change, that more money would move into the sector, that we would be able to solve the biggest problems of our time, and that fundraisers, that you would feel empowered and confident in the work you do, in the way that you deserve to feel every single day. So here we go. Episode one, we are going right to the heart of the matter. Well, here I am with Dr. Ethan Cross. Ethan, thank you so much for joining me today. Ethan is the author, I'm just going to hold it up, of Chatter, one of honestly my favorite books of all time. So The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How We Harness It. And I'm so excited to talk with you about it today and talk a little bit about how we can apply your learning to through the lens of a fundraiser or a nonprofit leader who often, you know, learn kind of personal or professional development tools, but don't integrate them into the ways they show up as fundraisers. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for your kind words about Chatter and I'm excited to chat. Well, you know that I, you know, I've been thinking about doing this podcast for a long time. And then I read your book in 24 hours. I literally couldn't put it down. And I messaged you right away. And I was like, you, I have to launch this podcast with you and with this book, because there just has been, it just resonated so strongly with me. And I also just want to give it one more praise. I mean, everyone should be buying it right now. But I, the other thing I just want to say is just what an easy read it is and how hard that must have been to take complicated scientific studies and make it just so digestible and the storytelling. So I just cannot imagine kind of the labor of love that went into it and just want to appreciate that. I thank you for saying it. And I would invite you to not imagine it because it was not a fun (laughs) enterprise. Um, (laughs) I mean, it wasn't all, all misery, doom and gloom, but it was, it was a lot of work. So, so it's really, it's just, you know, it's, it's wonderful to know that the message is landing and the intent of the book, which really was to take science and make it meaningful for other people and not get hung up on the terms and the jargon. I think it's so, it's so easy to lose sight of the big picture when, when we start using like, you know, complicated concepts and terms and we don't have to do that. So, so thank you. 
Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. So tell us, I know a little bit about sort of your background and what brought you to, you know, this moment, but just for all of our listeners who are getting to know you for the first time, will you share a little bit about your journey here? Sure. So I got interested in this. I've been doing research on introspection, turning our attention inward to make sense of our problems, using our the voice in our head to do that. I've been doing that formally for about 20 years, but I've been thinking about that for much longer, more like 35, 36 years. Because when I was a little kid, my dad used to continually tell me whenever anything bad happened, go inside, try to find a solution to your problem, introspect, and then move on. And that advice served me really well throughout my childhood and adolescence. Bad things happen, nothing crazy, but you know, rejected arguments, things like that. And I turned my attention inward to problem solve and and that'd be it. I'd move on. And, and so this was a skill that always served me really well. And then I got to college. I took my first psych class and we started getting to the topic of introspection about halfway through the semester. What I realized is that a lot of people do exactly what my dad told me to do, but they don't always benefit from it. In fact, this is what makes life miserable for many people. That is, they turn their attention inward and rather than coming up with solutions for their problems, they end up worrying and ruminating and catastrophizing, getting lost in thought in the most harmful ways. And so I got really interested in, in why it is that sometimes introspection can be this amazing tool going inside, right? Can help us solve problems, be creative, control ourselves, so forth and so on. But at other times, it can make life pretty miserable. And so I went to graduate school to, to figure out how to use science to try to figure out the answers to that puzzle. And I've been doing science on the topic ever since. And, and the book, Chatter, tells, tells what I've learned during those intervening 20 years about this. Mm. So is Chatter only the kind of negative thoughts? Or when you use the word Chatter, are you using it to describe both what people are having success with that internal dialogue and challenges or tell me about that. Yeah. So a great question and really important, I think, to clarify. So if we step back, when we use the term, when I use the term voice in our head or inner voice, what I'm referring to is our ability to use language silently to reflect on our life or do lots of different things. And this like language is a tool and it's a remarkably useful tool that lets us do many, many different things. I often describe it as a type of Swiss army knife of the mind. So your inner voice lets you do things like remember what groceries you have to buy when you're in the grocery store. So if I were to ask you to repeat a, nu- a string of numbers in your head, like zero, two, three, repeat that right now three times. Did you do it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Was it easy to do that? Mm-hmm. Good sign. That means, I mean, you've just used your inner voice. So, so we use language often to keep information active in our heads. We do it when we're memorizing a phone number, when we repeat it in our head. We do it when we repeat what we need from the grocery store and countless other things. That's one basic function that our inner voice serves. But it also lets us do lots of other things. Like when I'm preparing for a big presentation, I will walk around the neighborhood and I will simulate in my head what I'm going to say. I'll go through the talking points in my head. I'll rehearse them. I'll then sometimes get to the end of the speech in my head and I'll hear what the audience, what questions they're going to ask. And then I'll practice responding. This is all happening in my head and my inner voice is allowing me to do it. That's another thing our inner voice lets us do, simulate and plan. It also lets us control ourselves. Like when we're working on a really difficult puzzle, which for me nowadays is figuring out how to put together toys for my kids with like instructions that come in a four-point font. How the heck do I do this? Okay, hold this piece here and then screw this here. I literally coach myself through it. We use our inner voice to do that. And then finally, our inner voice helps us make sense of our of our experiences in the world in ways that shape our understanding of who we are. So bad things happen all the time. We get rejected. People we love die, get sick. You know, you could fill in the blanks for all the different kinds of adversity we face. Many people, when they experience adversity, they reflexively turn their attention inward to try to make sense of, so why did I get rejected? Why did this person die? There's nothing wrong with him. Why am I feeling this way? 
And what we're doing there, by turning our attention inward, we're trying to come up with some explanation or a narrative or a story to explain our experiences. Stories help us make sense of who we are. And our inner voice helps us do that. So, you know, I, I mentioned in the book, it storifies life. So if you step back and think about all those different functions our inner voice provides, it's an amazing tool that you would not want to live life without. And in fact, people who have their inner voice incapacitated, like from a, a stroke that wipes out their language centers, like this makes it really hard to live life. The only other point to emphasize here, though, is despite all these, these assets that the inner voice provides you with, sometimes, like many listeners will no doubt have experienced, we go inside to activate this useful tool and we don't get a useful benefit as a result. Instead, we, we end up spinning. We ruminate, worry. And that's chatter. And chatter is specifically the negative dark side of, of the inner voice that, that is totally common. It is very normal and something that I think most people have had experiences with. Mm. Okay. I love that. And I, I really like, I mean, I love the use of your word harness and I know you use it really intentionally, right? From what I, when I've heard you talk about this before, that it isn't about sort of making your inner dialogue out to be some demon, but to recognize that like, there are times when it really serves you. There are times when it's not serving you. And in those moments where it's not, how do you harness it? And, you know, so many of your tips and like, I love at the end that there's a toolbox. I just think that's so kind of critical. You know, so many of them are really quick. Like I, you know, I've been coaching for years now and a lot of the principles that I coach around overlap with a lot of the themes. So like the folks who work with me, when they read this book, they're going to be like, oh, oh, oh. But there were some things in there that totally blew my mind. Like, I think when you talked about using your own name, I was like, whoa whoa, no one in all the things I've ever read, you know, that advice had never come out before. And I was like, that's just so quick, right? Like the self-distancing, using your own name to pull you out of that sort of like tunnel vision moment where you're not seeing opportunity. And I do it. And I think so many of us do it, right? We're like, okay, Mallory, you can do this. Or like, okay, you know, this is, you've done something this scary before, you know, Janet, you got this. Like we do those things maybe without realizing it. And I think for me to be like, oh my gosh, that is how I've pumped myself up in a scary moment was just, and I know you have a fun story about how you kind of came upon that one too. Yeah. So, you know, with a lot of the tools that, that I talk about, There are 26 tools I talk about in the book, and I list them at the end. Some of these things, as you say, we've stumbled on. We somehow, they're they're in our our repertoire for managing adversity. You see a lot of instances of people using these tools, but they're often doing it without even being aware of it. And as a scientist, I find that absolutely fascinating. I can tell you, we don't yet understand exactly how some of these tools have gotten into people's toolboxes, and we're doing studies to figure that out. But we do know that they can be useful and help people. And so the distant self-talk where you use your name and the second person pronoun you to coach yourself through a problem, this is an instance of one of those tools that many people just reflexively revert to when they're under stress. I was just talking to someone earlier today who had experienced the loss of a child, really devastating experience, arguably one of the most devastating experiences you can imagine, most chatter-provoking. And the person was really struggling. And and what they told me is the way they broke out of it is they stopped at one point and just said, I'm not going to say the name for for confidentiality purposes, but but they effectively said, what are you doing? You need to stop this using their name and that helped them. And we see instances of this play out time and again. And importantly, experiments show that when you tell a person who's struggling with chatter, hey, try to give yourself advice, coach yourself through the problem like you were talking to someone else and use your name to do it, it helps people. As to why this works so quickly, which we find both very interesting and also exciting because we know people are more likely to use tools that are easy to use. Two things we know are this. Number one, it's much easier for us to coach other people on their problems than it is to take our own advice. So Mallory, you are a coach for a living. I'm gonna be willing to guess, we haven't talked about this, swear to God, 
We have not talked about this before, so I'm going out of the limb here. I'm going to guess you've been able to coach your clients through issues really well, seamlessly, but when the very same issues have occurred in your own life, you've maybe struggled a little bit more. Is that a fair assumption? 100%. I mean, I say all the time that every good coach has a coach, 100%. Right. There's even a technical name for this. We call it Solomon's Paradox. Uh, It's named after the Bible's King Solomon, who to this day is still known for being one of the, the wisest leaders of all time. But if you dig into his personal story, you find that he made a, a slew of terrible decisions when it came to his own life. So he didn't live wisely himself, but was able to coach other people. So first thing we know, much easier to coach others and ourselves. Then let's think about this distant self-talk, this seemingly odd tactic where people use their own name to advise themselves through a problem effectively. What do we know about names and second person pronouns like you? These are parts of speech that are almost exclusively used when we think about and refer to other people. Most of the time when I use names, it's like I'm using the name of my kids, my friends, right? We're thinking about others. So in the mind, there's an incredibly tight link between names, second person pronouns, and thinking about others. And the idea here is that that link is so tight that when you use your own name to think about your problems, it's in a set, in essence, activating the neural machinery that we use to think about others. And because of that, we have the distance, the space, the objectivity to weigh in on our own problems more effectively. So that's how that works. And it's, it, it's a really, I, I mean, I use that tool quite a bit. And it's a fun tool for sure. You do want to do it silently, not out loud. So I don't want to put a banner behind my desk that says, Mallory, you can do it. (laughs) Well, as long as no one else sees that banner, you know, you'll be fine. You know, there are potentially some value that comes from talking out loud. There's there's surprisingly a lot less research Hmm. on the function of actually talking out loud to yourself. But what we do know is that you don't want to walk down the city street talking to (laughs) Because that violates social norms. I want to say one more thing about this distant self-talk, though, and it'll link us back to some of the other ideas that that we've been chatting with about, and, and maybe we'll chat more about. This is one tool and one theme of the book that that I really lean into, and, and it's a message that I really believe very strongly in, is that there are no single panaceas, no cure-alls, no individual tools that work well for all people in all situations. By way of metaphor, no one would expect another person to be able to build a house, for example, with a single tool, right? Like a builder comes in, a carpenter, he's got, he or she has a whole tool belt with lots of different tools. They're used in combination to achieve the goal of building a house. And yet, if you think about our daily life, that assumption doesn't always translate over. We're often looking for a single quick fix. And, you know, studying this for over 20 years, I can tell you I have not come across any single quick fixes. What we do know, though, are that there are lots and lots of different tools. And the idea is that using some of these tools and combinations can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. And it may be different combinations or, or cocktails, non-alcoholic cocktails. <laughs> that no, different people may benefit from. I really love that. And I love that theme in the book too. And it reminds me, my sister recently had a baby and her and I were talking and she was like, well, she used to like this thing, this chair, and now she doesn't. And now she likes this thing. And I said to her, I was like, you know, the reality of early like infant babies is that you just kind of move them from thing to thing and you see what works in that moment and what doesn't. And they might've loved the boppy yesterday and tomorrow they love the docketot. And it's just about having, I was like, that's why there's so many baby things, you know, because you're kind of finding what fits that moment. And so as we were talking about that, I was like, that's another kind of metaphor. And I think is really empowering, you know, to be like, look, you try this one thing, it doesn't work. You have so many other things to go to, you know, I'm curious, what do you see in terms of the, like, I like the thinking about the tool belt. Another visualization I have a lot is around like muscle building, right? Like I sort of talk about how, you know, with things like chatter that maybe happen in a really high profile situation, you know, a fundraiser is like 
shamed at a board meeting, for example, for not closing a certain grant, right? The chatter that comes from that is so intense, right? The self-doubt, the language, the, the deep beliefs that it's triggering around them not being good enough. And so one of the things when I start to work with them around the narratives and sort of controlling the language in their head is like, yes, like that's going to be a really hard situation to start using some of these strategies with. But as you start to incorporate them into maybe lower state situations throughout your life, they then become more kind of accessible and available, or you even think about them more than when there are these bigger situations. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I think it's interesting. And in our own lab, we've done a lot of research taking some of these tools. We first study them in, let's say, medium intensity of situations. And then once we get a sense of how they work, we typically then try to amp up the volume even further. And we do that in a few ways. Sometimes we make the, the stressor like more intense. So we make those boardroom people that you're talking about, like really intimidating, mm -hmm. really nasty. Or sometimes we just bring into the lab people who are predisposed to experience chatter. So we all vary our tendency to experience this and some are more prone to it than others. And what we tend to find is that the strategies that many of the strategies in the book, not all of them, but a lot of them, they work as well but sometimes they're even more effective in the mm -hmm. high intensity situations. Mm -hmm. And, and which is, which is somewhat like that going into that work, like years ago, that was not obvious that that would happen. And my interpretation of that is that you might call it like the Tylenol effect. So if you take Tylenol and you don't have a fever, it's not going to move your temperature at all. But as your fever goes up, there's more room for the Tylenol to bring down your fever, right? So there's more signal to play with. And I think that is true of how some of these strategies work as well. If like, if you're not really experiencing chatter, if you're not truly distressed, there's not a whole lot of work for these strategies to do. Like mm -hmm. right now, you know, thank goodness. I'm not, I don't know why I'm doing this, but that's <laughs> anyway. I'm not with chatter at the moment, right? And yeah. so Ethan. How, you know, how are you going to manage? Well, I got nothing to manage. So it doesn't do it. But if I'm really struggling, then there could be room for it. So to bring it back to the question of try it here versus, and then build it up, I would say, just try using these strategies, mm -hmm. how they work and start self-experimenting because the beauty is the commitment that is needed to try is so low because the, most of the tools are so simple to use just give it a shot. It's not like you're committing to like three months of therapy or anything. <laughs> yeah. You know what? That is such a good point. Like, I think that's another reason why I love this book so much is that the tools were just like right there at your fingertips, right? Like everyone can use their name and you know, you, <laughs> and I think some of the deeper coaching work tends to be like belief work, right? It's like, you believe that you have to be perfect or else you're going to get fired. And so when you have a situation that illuminates the fact that you're not perfect because nobody is perfect and the stakes are lower, that's a certain level of chatter versus when you're shamed at a board meeting for not doing something perfectly, like the depth of that belief is just like so you know, intensified sort of, and that, but that's different than I think your strategies, which are just like, you're spiraling down in that chatter and you need immediate distance from that. And so these are the tools to allow you to do that. And then maybe you go at some point to the belief, the deeper belief work there. Yeah. And well, and sometimes, you know, when you get this, using some of these tools, will just help with the belief work too. Like when some people are really struggling with, with chatter and they use tools, they start off in total threat mode thinking, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm not prepared or it's too intimidating. But when they switch to, let's say using your name, like, all right, Ethan, can you manage this? How are you going to manage it? Like, well, yeah, you know what? I've done lots of these board meetings before and some of them have been really tough and this might be tough too, but I'll get through it. Cause I, I seem to have done so every other time I've tried. And so some of the beliefs there, you get some, some reframes there as well. So, you know, I think it's, it's hard to know when that, those beliefs will, will click in, those belief shifts. But I also want to emphasize that 
when we talk about distance, you know, it's sometimes people think that distance means avoid thinking about the problem. And that's not at all the way that we're talking about it or that I talk about in the book or the way it's been studied. What distance really speaks to is the ability to just step back a little bit to then approach the problem with a tiny bit more objectivity that will hopefully let you see the bigger picture in ways that are useful. So it's not avoiding the problem, Mm -hmm. which we don't want to encourage folks to do. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It's saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First T of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First T of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Yeah. No, I, yeah. And I, in another life was yoga teacher certified. And there's a term that they use there called cultivating the witness, which I think also, I feel like some synergy there of just, there have been moments where I've sort of called myself to do that and just sort of step back and tried to observe a little bit more objectively, like what just happened. And instead of internalizing maybe anger that came my way or something just to, to sort of assess and then figure out like how I want to engage and how I want to participate in it. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. I mean, that the idea of, of being able to distance or detach has been with us for millennia. It's been spoken about in both Eastern and Western philosophy. The way it's been translated often often differs a little bit depending on the the, the practice and the tradition, for example, some yogic philosophies and other other meditative practices emphasize witnessing and observing and not not reacting at all just accepting the presence and so that's like in my mind that's distancing in order to just observe but then you could distance in order to problem solve right so distancing isn't synonymous with observing there's lots of things you could do once you step back and i think value you can get value from from doing many different things from a distance hmm. Yeah, and I really appreciate that too, like kind of that differentiation there and and just really how all of this is focused on, okay, how do you apply this? How do you get this to help you do the thing that you're trying to do, right? So that's why when I read this book and I was like, oh my gosh, fundraisers need to read this is because there is so much chatter that inhibits action as a fundraiser. So, you know, being in the society that we're in today, you know, money still being a very taboo subject. There's a lot of stigma around the nonprofit sector, right? I mean, the amount of times in my career, I would say like, I'm a fundraiser and, and I would either hear like, oh my gosh, wow, I could never do that. Or I'd hear, don't ask me for money. You know, like those types of things are just so you know, as fundraisers, we sort of live with this like perception of what we do every day. And so I think that can lead sometimes to a lot of chatter like, okay, if I ask this person to increase their gift, right, they gave $2,500 last year, I really I know they have the capacity to do more, I've been building a relationship with them, I want to ask them to give $5,000 this year, we start to hear chatter like, Oh no, like if you give them more than that, they might not give it all because they might be upset that you asked them for more. Or what if they don't like you? There's a lot of pre-action chatter. And then when people say no, there's a lot of post-experience yeah. chatter. Yeah, that's just, you're not describing a fun state of mind to be in. <laughs> um, but you know, that's also like as you're describing it, another theme of the book is when we experience chatter we zoom in on the negativity and the potential negatives. And so one of the reasons why we think distancing is useful is because what distancing helps us do is step back and focus on the bigger picture, broadens our perspective. And if you apply that to the world of fundraising, yeah, you know, like it's not, there's a taboo in this culture about talking about money, there's a taboo, let alone asking about money. I mean, I was just in a previous conversation a few days ago it was literally about money. The whole conversation was about money. And yet we couldn't talk about money. 
but why mm-hmm. can't we talk about money? That's, you know, and so, it, you know, th- there's a very strong taboo. And if that's your whole work life centers on that, that can be troubling. But going broad, I think, in the nonprofit fundraising space can be really helpful because why are you asking people for money? Well, it's to support these great nonprofits who have these wonderful goals to do X, Y, and Z. And guess what? If they don't have money, they can't do what they need to do. It's not unlike a physician. Like physicians are are tasked with saving lives. Mm -hmm. Physicians Mm -hmm. charge for their services. They can't do what they need to do. Same thing goes for basic science. Like if we don't have grants, like I'm applying for money all the time because I needed to run my lab. Mm-hmm. We don't have money to do that. We can't do the science. So for better or worse, money is something that allows great things to happen. So what I've done here is I've mushroomed out. I've gone away from this tunnel vision. Oh my God, what are they going to think about me? If I ask them for more money, they're going to think I'm Weasley. And, you know, all the associates that come up and instead I'm now bigger picture. What's the goal? What's the mission? What's the purpose? And then it becomes a lot easier, I think, to have the kinds of difficult conversations that you're describing. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I, I would say like another, you know, strategy that I ask people to think about is not even just like, what is the organization doing, but what does inviting someone to participate in giving do for that donor, right? Like we go right into that kind of tunnel vision or that, you know, about the negative aspects of money movement, right? But people love, you know, one of the things I hear a lot is don't make it transactional. This is like a term we hear a lot in fundraising, don't make it transactional. And I was thinking about this the other day and I was like, A transaction is not inherently bad. Mm. People buy a house. That is a wonderful transaction. You know, people buy a car. People love that transaction. So what are the beliefs? What's the chatter around giving to nonprofits being transactional? And how can we start to sort of address that to recognize, actually, it's a really amazing opportunity for someone to get to change the world in the way they want to change it. How cool is that? And so if we can start to pull back into some of those narratives, then, you know, we're going to show up totally different. Totally. I mean, even you describing that makes it more exciting and wanting to get involved. And what you've done there is you've just broadened my perspective surrounding this topic, right? It's not just about getting money from one bucket and putting it in another. It's about change. And and it's not... This is not distortive in any way, this narrative. And I think that's another important thing to emphasize to listeners. What these distancing tools and perspective broadening tools, they're not leading you to inauthentically live life to come up with these false narratives that you know explain your existence. Instead, these narratives are often reflective of reality. It's just we're not focusing on the bigger picture often because we're so zoomed in on, on the potential threat. I love that. And I think what you're also sort of talking about is that oftentimes the chatter that we've developed or that is happening is based on a false assumption that we're making even, right? Like we're sort of telling this story that making an ask is like, you know, we're guilting someone into doing something they don't want to do. We've like made up this whole narrative around the interaction that then is leading to this sort of like false chatter. Well, I mean, you know, we do know that, and this is something that is important for listeners to remind themselves of, there's a lot of evidence suggesting that bad is stronger than good. So losses loom larger than gains. Basically, what that all means is that we are predisposed to overfocus on the negative side of things as compared to the positive. And so when you talk about like the false narrative, it's all a matter, I think, of degree and what we choose to focus on and what we choose to focus on has implications for the narratives we create. And recognizing that in general, we choose to over-focus on the negative stuff. And so, you know, pulling back a tiny bit can be really useful for correcting that. Mm -hmm. I love that. But I really, I really like what you're saying about our predisposition to focus on something negative. And that kind of goes back to something you were saying before, which is when you were using that distant self-talk to say, 
you've done this before. You've done this before and it's been incredibly successful. Like that's what's a little bit mind boggling to me about fundraisers, right? Is like they have been fundraising successfully, most of them for many, many years. But successful fundraising inherently involves rejection. It's a numbers game, right? So it's like not everyone is going to be aligned with you. That's okay. Like, right? It's about finding the right funders for your organization who want to make the change that you are trying to make. And the process of fundraising is just figuring out who those people are, right? But there is so much focus on kind of the constant rejection as opposed to the fact that you just raised like $3.5 million last year. Like, why don't you think you can do it again? Yeah, exactly. Well, and the reason why is, I mean, it's often a matter of perspective. We're so zoomed in on the potential threat of rejection. We're not thinking about that bigger picture. And, And so once you know how to zoom out, you can get shifts pretty quickly. Like just last week, I had to give a presentation. It was a pretty big deal presentation. And not everything was going right about it. Like the organizers initially wanted me to tape record it. And I sent them the tape recording and like, well, it's not, the lighting's not good. And then I do it again. And then it got cut off. They're like, well, just do it live and blah, blah, blah. And I started to get a little bit filled with chatter. And then I, Ethan, you've literally done hundreds and hundreds <laughs> and hundreds of these. And guess, and Ethan, they've never gone bad. And once that broadening of perspective set in, it was easy. So that's really what we're talking about. But then again, this is just one one tool we're talking about amidst lots of ways of doing this. And so I think that's the other thing. And you know, we're we're not. There's no way we're going to be able to talk about all these different tools, and we don't need to. They're all in the back of the book. You go to my website. You can also get there's some downloads there. But the beauty is that. A magical kind of discovery that I had researching the book was this this awareness that tools are all around us. Like they're Mm -hmm. hidden in plain sight. They're in our minds. They're in our relationships. They're in our physical environments. So they're there. And they're just, you know, they're kind of waiting to be used. It it reminded me of, by way of analogy uh, or metaphor, I guess, several years ago, my wife is from South Africa. And we visited her family and then we took a couple of days into the, in the bush where like, you know, animals and all sorts of predators that I don't really like. And we spent one day in the bush on a nature walk. And like, when I looked, I was like standing super close to the ranger, like super close, probably uncomfortably close. Cause he had the gun and I wanted to be close. <laughs> and like, you know, I'm just being very clear. I don't <laughs> Grew up in the city, <laughs> don't mesh with me very well. But as we're walking, all I see is bleakness and like potential threat, like death. I'm seeing predators in the distance. And this guy instead starts pointing things out. He like he points to this raggedy looking bush and he's like, You see what that is? I don't know, it's like a dead, a dead plant. He's like, that's charmin. You know, that was like toilet paper if you're in there wow. and then he points to another bush and he's like that's you know like an anti- antibiotic and he does this for all these different things and if you know where to look you could find tools resources and i would argue that the same is true when it comes to chatter like if you know where to look for the tools they're there and you could avail yourself of them mm-hmm. so, so the hope is conversations like this the book and so forth really help people find those tools yeah, I totally agree. And I also highlight and people all make sure have the links to all the things, you know, buying the book, getting the toolkits. But I really like the diversity of tools that you talk about, right? You talk about nature, like getting out in nature and how that is helpful for chatter. Talk about physical touch, you know, appropriate physical touch, which is so interesting. I was as I was, you know, thinking about our conversation today, I started to reflect on that. And I'm not, you know, if you do the love languages thing, like I wouldn't, I don't score very high on physical touch is like something that I feel like I crave. But what's really, when I was thinking about it last night, I thought about how I have a daughter who's almost two. And I was thinking about how, like, even on the hardest days, she grabs my hand or sits on my lap and it's just like, it's gone. You know, like, even if I'm spiraling, it's like, something about that zooms me way out to the bigger picture, you know, and you talk about that's another one, I won't go through all of them, because you're right, there are too many, but you talk about awe, 
And I think about in the nonprofit sector, we have the ability to be awe-inspired all the time. And I am, you know, I look at my clients, I look at the organizations I work with, and I'm in utter awe in the same way as I am when I travel and the same way I am when I watch her learn a new word, you know, and recognizing, taking that moment now to be like, wow, that was awe, involuntary awe, but is also this tool that I need to remember when I am feeling like, man, running my own business as a new mom is not easy, but like, where can I sort of pull back and infuse these different tools that do work for me that I have found through that experimentation that you recommend and really build them into my life? Yeah, totally. I mean, you're, you're describing the value of being aware of what the tools are and then using them flexibly, beginning with affectionate touch that's wanted in both directions. <laughs> I mean, you know, touch is so interesting because it's such an easy tool to lose sight of, but touch is probably the first, the most primitive tool we use to regulate ourselves. Like the moment a baby is born into this world, what do we do? We put the baby on the mom's chest, like skin to skin contact. You hold the baby when, when our kids are in distress, right? Like we console them, we hug them, we give them kisses. And, and we value touch throughout our lifespan. There's research which shows the simple affection and embrace releases stress-fighting chemicals. And of course, it also reminds us of that there's more to life than what we're dealing with. So yeah, so this is why it's not about one tool. You know, a little distant self-talk, mix in some touch, affectionate and wanted. We have to give the disclaimers always. (laughs) Yes. You know, find some awe, go for a walk in a green space, perform a ritual, find a chatter advisor to talk to someone who's skilled at really helping you work through your problems, not getting you to ruminate more. Like we just gave a cocktail to someone to help them with their, with their chatter. And so the hope is that people learn about this information and then they start doing some self-experimentation to figure out, well, which are the tools that really work best for me, given the unique chatter triggers that I face in my life? Hmm. There are two questions I really, I'm just dying to ask you. But one is like, do you find, you know, I was talking about how fundraisers have kind of like that pre-event chatter and post-event chatter. Do you find that when people use strategies in kind of their post-event chatter, like, you know, they're beating themselves up about something that they did and they have success there, that it naturally decreases the pre-event chatter, or is it all pretty disconnected and sort of compartmentalized to the moments that we're in? Well, you know, unfortunately, there's not enough data that, like you're asking a really great and sophisticated question, which is, does the implementation of different tools following a chatter provoking event buffer you against subsequent bouts of chatter? And we just don't know the answer to that question yet. So I wish I could answer with like a clear cut answer, but I can. That's good news. It keeps people like me in business to keep you. <laughs> so if you ask me now, not to cite a specific study, but if you're just asking me for my intuitions about mm-hmm. what I think is that the better you get at using these tools, the shorter the period of chatter becomes. So you get to nip it in the bud much more quickly. And I do think that that has some downstream implications for how potent subsequent episodes of chatter are, because you're getting better at correcting it and nipping it in the bud right away. So you're shortening the period in which it happens. I don't think we're ever going to rid ourselves of chatter altogether. We can't possibly predict like the range of situations that are going to instigate it, right? Like something can happen that might be devastating to you right? Like, and it's just unpredictable. And Mm -hmm. so you would expect a person when in the face of extreme adversity to begin to experience chatter. So I don't think we can ever totally buffer ourselves against it, but we can certainly minimize in a significant way the negative effects it has on our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I think that goes back to your point about it's not all bad, right? Like there are important reasons why we hear this chatter and I tend to think when my chatter is increasing that it's kind of a good sign. Like I'm doing, I'm leveling up. I figured out how to control the chatter on X, you know, but I, but here's a new thing that I'm doing. And so this is here to like 
remind me that when I'm really taking risks and doing something bigger, that I'm going to hear a little bit more of that. And then I'll learn how to control it and I'll use my strategies. And, and I find with myself, then they go down over time, right? The 10th time I do a webinar, there's way less, you know, or it's much quicker, I guess, to overcome the chatter. But then when I do my first new thing somewhere else, it comes back. And, and I think, you know, we talked about this a little bit before around like how fundraisers sometimes learn skills or tools like this and they apply it in other areas of their life but they don't apply it to their fundraising. And I think, you know, what you're really kind of illuminating through the book and this conversation and some of the other talks that you've had is just like how important it is to consistently be trying out different tools in different situations. So if one tool worked for you when it came to chatter around your marriage, right? And it doesn't work for you when you try it immediately preparing for that donor meeting, that means nothing about whether or not you can actually control the chatter around that major donor meeting. It just means like you got to go look in your toolbox because you're trying to build your kid's playhouse with your actual table saw. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you, you, you've got it exactly right. So. A plus hundred and two. I'm back in Michigan and I'm doing great. Got it. Got it. <laughs> but I mean, you, you said it perfectly. Just to summarize, negative emotions aren't something we want to avoid. Negative emotions are elegantly adaptive. It is useful to experience a small jolt of anxiety or even a medium jolt before doing something consequential that's new. That anxiety motivates you to do what you need to do. So I don't really ever set my alarm clock. I don't have to, because I know that if there's something important that I need to do, my internal alarm clock will get like, I'll have some motion that gets me going that says, okay, you know, time to wake up at six to start working on this presentation or paper or whatever. That's okay. And, and we want to listen to those negative emotions and let them do the good work they're designed to do, which is prepare us appropriately for what we're facing in the world. What we don't want to have happen, of course, is have those negative emotions morph into chronic chatter, which then makes it hard to do what we want to do. Like one of the reasons why chatter is so toxic is it consumes us. So it doesn't leave up, leave over any attention for us to focus on the things we need to focus on, our jobs, our presentations, our kids, and so forth. So we don't want to get rid of the negative side of life. A little bit of negativity is okay. Oh, we want to get rid of the chatter. And then, yeah, don't use a saw to do the job of a hammer and preferably bring both tools to any given situation so that you have the flexibility to figure it out. Because, you know, another way to think about this is you may be presented with a new puzzle, let's say, and you may not know which tool is best for that puzzle. But if you have both or all six or all 26, then you can start experimenting to figure out which key fits the lock, so to speak. So I think that just gives people a lot more opportunity to be successful than if they put all their quote unquote money on one tactic. I love that. And I, I just love the capacity, the, the way that harnessing this chatter builds capacity of people by reducing paralysis or the time they're, you know, they're spending obsessing about something when they want to be in action. You know, these fundraisers, they do want to be raising more money. And I think if they can harness the chatter, they're going to. I mean, that's what I said when I first reached out to you is like, I think like this is it. People think that the secret to fundraising more is in this next tech tool or in this net, you know, having a different job, having a different, you know, management system, having a different whatever. I actually think this is it. I think if people can harness the chatter around fundraising, we will see a revolution in the nonprofit sector. We will see so much more money in this sector, which is not a fixed market. The reality is, is the nonprofit sector is as big of a market as we can inspire people to be a part of. And so, you know, I'm just, I'm so grateful for your work and for this book. And we, I did say that I, I want to end these episodes with you giving you a chance to highlight a nonprofit that you really care about and inviting our listeners to go and check them out to just bring this full circle in support of the sector. Well, A, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I really do think that 
solving the chatter problem would have transformational effects. So I hope we can do it. And I, I value the work you're doing to help make that happen. In terms of a nonprofit that I find really inspiring, I would say Angela Duckworth's The Character Lab, which is a nonprofit that's devoted to taking scientific insights and applying them in schools so that you can give kids a science-driven edge when it comes to their social and emotional lives. Oh, I love that. Okay, everyone go check that out right now. And, you know, there's so many amazing nonprofits that we don't hear about. And so I love giving, just shining, having an extra chance to shine a light on them. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Cross, for joining us today and for helping, you know, launch this podcast with something so meaningful and so transformative. I'm incredibly grateful for you. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for all the work you're doing and I'm honored to help you kick it off and I will be tuning in to see how things are going and, and, and um, having my fingers crossed. Thank you. All right, friends, do you see why I had to bring on Dr. Cross for episode one? So much of what we covered today describes my experience as a nonprofit leader and fundraiser, the spiraling negative thoughts, the paralysis. And I wish that 15 years ago, I had access to these tools and tips and this awareness. I still use things like this every single day in running my business to keep me inspired and motivated and grounded and to help me stay on track and take risks. And I know that a lot of what I do as a business owner is the same as what you do and what you need as a nonprofit leader and fundraiser. And so I hope you're ready to try these different things. See what you can put in your tool belt, what works for you in different circumstances and situations. There's so much here. And at the back of his book, Chatter, he has an entire toolkit for you to try and take away. And to get all the show notes from today's episode, head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast. You'll find links there to ethancross.com and be able to order chatter, which you should do right away. And you'll also find other tools and resources for my 15 years of fundraising. Most importantly, if you're still here with me now, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. I know how busy you are and the fact that you just spent an hour of your time learning how to fundamentally change the way that you show up and feel as a fundraiser is critically important. I'm so grateful to you and to the entire nonprofit sector for the good hard work that you do each and every day. My goal is to help you feel more empowered, more confident in the work that you do because it is critically important. So thank you. And if you miss me between episodes, you can go on over to Instagram at what the fundraising underscore. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a DM. And if not, I'll see you here next week. Thanks for being a part of episode one and the launch of this podcast. I'm so grateful for you. Have a great day. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to malloryerickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.